At thy choice, then. To beg of thee, it is my more dishonor than thou of them. Come all to ruin. Let thy mother rather feel thy pride than fear thy dangerous stoutness. For I mock at death with as big heart as thou. Do as thou list. Hello, my name is Ryan Hamill, and I am one of the hosts of New Humanists, the podcast of the Ancient Language Institute. As always, I'm here with Jonathan Roberts, my co-host and co-founder of the Ancient Language Institute. Uh, We also have a special guest with us, but before we introduce her, let's just remember why we're here. And that is because we are on a quest to discover what a renewed humanism looks like for the modern world. You just heard Catherine Bradshaw read a passage from Coriolanus, which is what we'll be talking about today. Catherine is one of our Greek and Latin fellows at ALI. Super happy to have her here. Besides being a language teacher with us, she's also a scholar of the classics and of English literature, especially Shakespeare. So super excited to have you, Catherine. Well, thank you all for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Catherine has a master's in classics and a master's in English literature, which was the bulk of it, Shakespeare, if I understand rightly. Both degrees from the George Washington University. Right, yeah. Well, the English one is from George Washington University. The classics is from University of Maryland. Got it, got it. So when Jonathan and I talked to Catherine, we said, We knew you had these interests, and we asked which Shakespeare play from his classical stuff you wanted to talk about, and you said Coriolanus. At least that's the first one we should do. Yes. Um, So excited to get into it. Yes. (laughs) Uh, But before we do talk about the tragedy itself, why don't we talk a little bit about Shakespeare and the classics generally? Was Shakespeare just kind of picking out some episodes from ancient history and then filling them with kind of Elizabethan content? Or was he actually attentive to the classics? I think the best summation of Shakespeare is that he is just saturated in the classics, especially the Roman history, authors, language, the Latin language. Those are all something that just oozes out of Shakespeare, not just his Roman works, but also the whole corpus of his writings. And it's partially because of the education system in the Elizabethan English culture that he grew up in. So the grammar schools, which we would call them in modern America public schools, were from age 7 to age 16, most boys would be attending these schools. And these schools are basically a crash course in Latin, Roman authors, Roman rhetoric. There's a little bit of math and a little bit of history, but it's mostly Latin, Roman authors, and rhetoric. And oh, by the way, it's all in Latin, and the boys got in trouble if they even spoke English during recess. So Shakespeare had to know tons of Ovid and Virgil and Cicero and memorize these things and then write compositions that are based on these things and then translate them and then translate them back into Latin. And so there was this whole storehouse of cultural reference points that a grammar school graduate would have and that Shakespeare knew that his audience would have. And so he could use those to make allusions, to play with things, to rework things in his plays that the audience would have picked up on very quickly, even if they weren't university educated. So you said the these Elizabethan grammar schools would be equivalent to public schools, meaning these aren't exclusive to like the aristocracy or something. Exactly. They're government funded and they would be available to pretty much most English families. Now, obviously, if the completely poverty, no money at all, it would be difficult. But lower middle class, Shakespeare's father was not a very wealthy man. He was a glove maker. Hmm. So even it's highly unlikely that Shakespeare would not have attended the grammar school in Stratford where he grew up. So a a classical education in... Uh, in Latin, attentive to the Roman authors is 
not just an elite thing, at least historically. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the way that you described the course of study, it's almost as if somebody said, you know, at some point in history, we need a Shakespeare. So let's <laughs> let's create this system of education and make sure that that happens. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was meant to educate the citizenry in a way that they could be participating in the society because they knew that some of these people, some of them would be merchants and and normal people, but some of these people were going to go on into government. And so you needed to train the rising political class to use rhetoric effectively and to recognize when rhetoric is being used effectively. How do you get a Shakespeare, you know, the high point of English language poesis while educating him for most of his life in Latin? I mean, one would think that if you want to create a Shakespeare, you do that course of study, but in English. The imitation of the best and the intake of the best is much more likely to produce the best. And so, at least according to Elizabethan lights at the time, the best was Roman literature. And one has to remember that up until this point, we've had some medieval, you know, amazing pieces of literature, Beowulf, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, Chaucer, but the majority is not these highlights. Whereas you go to Roman history and Roman literature, you have a plethora of stuff to choose from. And so it just would make sense to be able to access all of that amazing treasure in the original language. I think the Elizabethan educational model is sort of a, well, since we can learn from the best, why not learn from the best? Right, right. So, Catherine, why did you want to do Coriolanus first? What's the draw? Well, there's a couple things. One, it's the one that takes place in time earliest, because this is the early Roman Republic, so it's circa 500 B.C., as opposed to Julius Caesar and Antony and Cleopatra, which are both first century BC. But the reason why I love this play so much is it is an exploration of what happens when ancient Roman pietas, the duty that was such a value for the Romans, this duty that is owed to the community, the family, and the divine, when that value goes horribly, terribly wrong because of just how people act toward each other. And so that's what draws me to this play because Shakespeare, in his tragedies, he takes these extreme circumstances in order to show these very human dilemmas because the duty to the family and the community and the divine, it conflicts in everyday human life in smaller ways. I mean, a whole city doesn't depend on it usually as it does in Coriolanus, but it does in Coriolanus so we can see the effects of a situation like that. Yeah, when you put the theme of Coriolanus that way, it makes me think of Antigone Mm. that explores a lot of the same theme, slightly different setup, but it's the same theme. Yeah, yeah, because you've got the community in in Creon, but then you've got the family in, in Antigone. Right. And Creon doesn't understand that you need both, and Antigone can't bend, and neither can Creon, and so there's this no win situation. Yeah, exactly. Is Pietas, in the Roman sense, markedly different from Greek piety? The Romans have the family, the city, and the gods. I mean, the Greeks seem to have roughly the same thing, but, you know, you don't want to collapse the Greeks and the Romans because they obviously have some differences too. The Greeks don't seem to emphasize Pietas, like that idea, as much. Like everyone should be dutiful. Right. But the Romans make it into this big cultural value. I mean, Caesar Augustus made it one of his catchphrases. So it just became this central cultural thing. And of course, the Aeneid is stuffed with references to Pietas and sum piosineas, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So I think it's not necessarily that the definition is different. It's just that the emphasis is not there as much for the Greeks. There are other values that are more important to them than for the Romans. Got it. Yeah. One thing, I was listening to a podcast by our friends over at the New Thinkery where they were talking about Coriolanus with Professor Jan Blitz, who's, after listening to that, I bought his uh, his edition of the play and read it. It's great notes. Um, but one thing yeah. he talks about on there, this isn't about piety, but 
he talks about the Coriolanus early in the play says that the tribunes threatened to unroof the city, mm-hmm. which really highlights a difference between the Romans and the Greeks, where for the Romans, Jupiter is sitting on top of the Capitoline Hill and he can see the whole world, but really, really it's just about Rome. Rome is really the whole world. Right. Whereas for the Greeks, they're, the city isn't necessarily in the same way, kind of the the peak of religion. Yeah. There's more open to an unroofed kind of transcendent world, whereas the Romans are like, no, eh, this Rome, that's, that's the high point. Yeah. There is much more a centralization in Rome than there is in kind of the, and I think, I think the city state, the fact that they're comfortable with that kind of, okay, there's a bunch of different powers, you know, all around, as opposed to Rome says, no, no, no. We have one gravitational area, and that is where we are. Right. And that's our mother. And so we owe her, because the duty to the community, I I usually use duty when I'm talking about pietas, because piety has all these, you know, connotations that come from later use in Christian literature. Sure, yeah. But the duty, it starts in the family, and then that family metaphor is kind of expanded out into the community where the community is your family. Right. And so you owe it just as much. Right. And the gods are these powerful beings that you'd better respect. Otherwise, it might actually hurt the entire community. Mm-hmm. And so that divine is intermeshed with everything else. Mm-hmm. So Shakespeare didn't make this play up. I mean, in the sense of it's based in history. Mm-hmm. Where does Coriolanus come from, like source-wise? I know he's in... In Plutarch, I know Livy talks about him. Right. Are there other sources or is it just those two? It's mainly those two and specifically Plutarch is the main, main source. Okay. So Shakespeare probably knew Latin backwards and forwards, Greek, mm, some exposure probably, but not enough to be able to read Plutarch in the original Greek like he could probably read Ovid in the original Latin. Okay. So there's a English translation of a French translation of the Greek. Oh my. Which was very, very popular in Shakespeare's day. It was a translation that the French was Jacques Amiot, was the translator. And so this English of the French (laughs) came out during Shakespeare's lifetime. And going from the language that he uses in the play and the language that's used in that translation, that's probably his main source for Plutarch. And so Plutarch's life of Coriolanus is the main source for this play to the point that there are parts of the play that you can kind of trace back and go, oh, that sounds almost exactly like, except versified, uh, the the Plutarch. Right. Which for us moderns, that sounds like plagiarism, but for the Renaissance, that would not be a problem. They would actually think, oh, this is an imitatio. This is a, like an educational exercise that they would do when they were kids where you have to write an imitation that's different enough that you can tell that it's not the original, but it's similar enough that you can tell where the original was and what it said. And so Shakespeare does this a huge amount in his plays, and Coriolanus is definitely one of those. Particularly, there's one speech at the end where the character Volumnia is pleading for Rome. And you can see, okay, he basically versified that section, but added this. Hmm. So the audience... You know, when they're watching the play, if they receive the same sort of education as Shakespeare, they hear this reference, they see that it's very similar to the historical source material. They don't think plagiarism. They think, ah, throwback to Plutarch and, you know, the good old school days when we would get beaten up for not speaking in Latin during the playground. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. A lot like that. It's like some films that are very referential to other films. And you get so much out of the film if you go, oh, yeah, that's referencing this older film. Not enough that it's a plagiarism, but it's, it's, it's a reference. It's that same kind of, ah, excellent feeling. It's likely that much of his audience got a better education, right? Because it's not just commoners that are watching these plays. Yeah. It's kind of the upper classes who are also attending, right? Exactly. Yeah. So he'd have university graduates who were as fluent in Greek as a grammar school boy would be in Latin. Well, I mean, Queen Elizabeth and King James came to the place 
And so you'd have people who were fluent in like 10 different languages and <laughs> all that as well. But it's not possible to learn Latin to proficiency. That's why you just have to study grammar paradigms, right? Oh, of course. <laughs> Definitely, because Latin is as dead as dead can be. <laughs> so let's get into it. Catherine, would you give us kind of a synopsis of the play? Because I imagine some of our audience has read it or seen it, and some have not. So who is this guy? What happens to him? Certainly. Well, the play's protagonist is Caius Martius, who is a Roman patrician. So he's of the senatorial level of society. And the play starts with a riot because the plebeians, the non-senatorial class, the common people, are in the middle of a famine and they want grain really badly. And they're calmed down. Everything's fine because they're given five tribunes, five governmental representatives. And this is very early in the Republic. Like the last king of Rome is within living memory. So they're still kind of figuring out how this whole Republic thing works. So the people have gotten representation, and Caius Martius is not happy about this at all. He would much rather have an oligarchy where the Senate's ruling everything. The Romans at this time are at war with a neighboring Italian tribe called the Volscians or the Volsces, and their general is a man named Tullus Ophidius, and he's basically Caius Martius's nemesis. The Romans and the Volscians are in battle, and during this battle, Caius Martius goes into the city of Caryales and single-handedly conquers this city. <laughs> and for this amazing feat of arms, he is given the honorary name of Coriolanus, which is, of course, where we get the title. So he's Caius Martius Coriolanus. He returns to Rome in triumph. And at this point, we learn that his mother is very influential in his life. He became a soldier in order to please her. His father's dead, and she's raised him. So even though he's married and has a son, his mother is the main influence in his life. And this is very important because then Coriolanus, as kind of the next step in a Roman patrician's career, runs for consul. So one of the two offices that's basically like the president of the Republic. This is all well and good, except that to do this, he has to solicit the people's votes from the common people whom he despises. and. He doesn't do a very good job at this. In fact, he makes them really angry at him and they get so angry that there's another riot and they banish him. At this point, he is so enraged that he doesn't go off into exile and settle down quietly until he's recalled like most people do. <laughs> he goes over to the Volscians and says, hey, you want a new general? I can go and conquer Rome for you. And so he becomes friends with his archenemy, Talus Ophidius, and leads the Volscians against Rome and has besieged Rome at this point and is going to conquer Rome. And so Rome sends out all these deputations of all his friends and everything, and he sends them back and sends them back and sends them back to the point that it's as if he has no ties to Rome at all. And then they send out his mother and wife and son. And it still seems like he's going to be just as hard as ever until his mother makes this amazing... His mother's name is Volumnia. She makes this amazing rhetorical plea that appeals to all three facets of Pietas. Hmm. And she hits him really hard on the family Pietas until he finally yields and says, okay, we'll make a peace. But oh, by the way, mom, I'm probably dead. Because he doesn't go back to Rome. He goes back with the Volscians to Coriolis, where at this point, Tellus Alphidius, who has been kind of getting tired of the fact that Coriolanus has ousted him in Volscian politics, assassinates him in the Volscian assembly. And the play ends with Martius's military, well, Coriolanus's military funeral. The synopsis is really helpful because it's just hearing you say it. I mean, I've read this play a couple times now, but just having you kind of pick out these details brings all these parallels to mind that I hadn't thought of before. Like the general who can't do anything but wage war. And so when sent into exile has to go fight again. I mean, that's Napoleon. Like they should have known you banished Napoleon. He's going to come back. He's going <laughs> to fight again. <laughs> but then also the fact of the assassination at the end, I'm sure 
I mean, I was not educated as well as a Elizabethan commoner, so these parallels don't occur immediately to me. (laughs) Neither (laughs) was I. I'm jealous. (laughs) I'm sure they would have picked it up, but the fact that he was assassinated in the Volscian Assembly, I mean, this is clearly a prefiguration of what's going to happen in another Roman play by Shakespeare, is Julius Caesar, except, of course, in the Roman Assembly. Yeah, and at this point, when Coriolanus was written, Coriolanus was written after Caesar, so... It's almost self-referential at this point. Oh. I hadn't picked up on that parallel. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's great. And Ryan, you just mentioned the general that all he can really do, his comparative advantage, if we want to use that language, is fight. <laughs> right. It makes me think of Pompey. Yeah. The Great. Hmm. Who... You know, the way that he's described by many historians, it's like he's just waiting for the next conflict because he just kind of gets bored and uneasy with public life. Mm-hmm. So he's the he's the guy that you want to send to take care of the pirates, but not necessarily the man that you want in charge of public life. Yeah. And, and Coriolanus actually says something very similar to that when they get news early in the play that the Volscians are up in arms again. He says, I'm glad of it. So then we shall have leave to vent our musty superfluity. Like, it's as if we've got this war building up in us and we've got to get it out. And so that's how he sees the world. You know, part of the, in I think it's in Livy, some argue that Paul kind of takes this image from Livy, the, the, the image of the body, mm-hmm. where you need the different parts doing different things in order to have real harmony. Oh, yeah. I wonder if there's some sort of critique of the cursus honorum, where it's like the goal of everyone, ultimately, what you want is to be the console, mm-hmm. right? Right. That's your highest achievement to unlock. Jonathan, can you, for our listeners, explain your reference to the cursus honorum? Yeah, so there are different offices in Roman political life. Uh, you could be a tribune of the plebs, which would be a representative of the plebeian class. You can be an ideal and, you know, there's senators, but the highest office is that of consul. And as, as Catherine mentioned, you would have two consuls. And so, and so if you were really ambitious, I mean, so if you're a Roman, you are really ambitious. You really want to be, <laughs> you really want to be at the top. Then you got to be a consul. And it just seems like the way that this play is set up, you have this character that is very much not suited. To be a consul, this is something that you know I hadn't really realized. He's not suited to be a consul, but he's definitely suited to try to be at the top of whatever it is that he's doing. Mm-hmm. But the kind of structure of honor is saying you got to be a consul, and that's kind of what's setting the the train tracks towards a collision here. Yeah, the play makes it very clear that this isn't really what he wants. I mean, he says, I'd rather be their servant, i.e. the people's servant, in my way than sway, rule them in theirs. And it's very clear through the dialogue that this is what his friends want for him. This is what his mother wants for him, most importantly. But he doesn't really want it. And the only reason why he fights for it is because, well, it was given to me and now it's being taken away. So it's a personal insult. It's not that he really wants to be consul. Right. There's something problematic about his character and the nature of aristocratic, or at least semi-aristocratic regime, because Rome at this point, like you said, is newly a mixed regime. It was previously an aristocracy. Yeah. And now because of, was it the grain riot that creates the tribune office? In the play, yes. Shakespeare smushes about three different things. There's a grain riot, there's the secession of the plebs over debt. So they go off and sit on a hill and say, okay, we're done. We're going on strike, basically. <laughs> okay. And then there's one other event. So there's there's two grain riots and then there's the secession of the plebs. So all of those are smushed together in the play to become the one thing. Mm-hmm. Got it. So it's this newly mixed regime, but it still has an aristocratic element in that oh, yeah. the aristocrats are nominally in charge. The tribunes seemed, in the play at least, to be much more wily and to be really in control until things get out of hand. Yeah. But the thing with Coriolanus is, I mean, he's just like Thumotic Drive incarnate. 
all he wants to do, all he is, is anger and competition and glory and honor. Right. And so with the Cursus Honorum, it says consuls at the top. And so Coriolanus can't help but Mm -hmm. go for what gives him the most honor. And yet on another level, he doesn't really seem to want it. He's not willing to do the, to make the political moves, flattering the people. I mean, they have this whole ritual, which is really interesting, where he has to go mingle with the, what does he call them? The garlic, the garlic eaters, because they smell bad. <laughs> uh, he has to go mingle with them and wear like, I don't know, this really revealing garment so they can all look at his scars and see like, oh yeah, he's really bled for Rome. Yeah. And they can kind of touch him. Uh, and he's like, oh, this is terrible. These people stink. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and actually Plutarch says that it's basically they would wear a toga without a tunic underneath. So it's just the drapey thing and not the thing that's supposed to cover the rest of you. So yeah, it's, it's very revealing and very like it's invasive. And Plutarch talks about this, not so much Shakespeare, but the idea is woven in throughout the play is that if somebody wants to be in political power, there's a necessity of being mistreated. Plutarch says that one has to be willing to be mistreated if one wants political office. And Coriolanus doesn't have that capability to allow himself to be mistreated, or at least allow himself to be, in his mind, lowered from the pedestal that he's on. And so Plutarch says, well, if you don't want to do that, you shouldn't be angry when people don't vote for you. Mm -hmm. Paraphrase very loosely. Sure, sure. But Coriolanus doesn't have that wisdom. Right. His mother does. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of the characters do. And I think it comes out in Shakespeare, if at least you see flattery as like a form of self-mistreatment, mm-hmm. because you're like, okay, I'm going to kind of grit my teeth and speak lies or something <laughs> close to lies. Not what I think is really true. And the tribunes can obviously do it. Yeah. Because they whip the people up into rejecting Coriolanus as consul. Are the people dumb and they don't get that Coriolanus is insulting them in his speeches for Tribune? Or are they willing to be mistreated because they know that this guy is virtuous and so we want him even if he kind of hates us? Yeah, it's that second one because they know that he's done so much for Rome. Yeah. They know that he is their protector. Yeah. So there's a little public assembly where the people are kind of getting ready for this ritual. And one of the people, the commoner says to the other plebeians, ingratitude is monstrous. And for the multitude to be ungrateful were to make a monster of the multitude. Mm -hmm. So there's this idea that like, yeah, we don't like him, but it would be ungrateful of us to reject him right now because of all he's done for us. Mm -hmm. So they give him their votes until they're angered by the tribunes poking at all the, the soft spots. Right. And so, yeah, the tribunes are willing to lie because they whip the people up. And then the tribunes then go to the senators and they're like, what's going on? We were going to support Coriolanus, but now the people have turned against him. What's going on? Yeah. So they know how to lie. The people know how to lie, so to speak. Mm -hmm. They're willing to be mistreated. Coriolanus' friends uh, are able to flatter. Yeah, Menenius is great at it. Yeah. And so it's... Most people seem to have some capability to do this, and it's this kind of mm-hmm. Superman, Coriolanus, who's totally unfit. <laughs> he's unfit. He's like, he's more of a man than a man. He's just like, he's over the top. Yeah. And when we get later in the play, it's Menenius, his friend who then is rejected by Coriolanus when Coriolanus is leading the Volshies. Menenius says... He wants nothing of a God but eternity and a heaven to throne in. Like, all he needs is to be immortal and go live on Olympus, and he'll be a God. He's not a man anymore. Now, of course, the Tribune that he's talking to says, yes, mercy. There's one other thing he's lacking is mercy. Which is a divine characteristic. Exactly. So those are missing. Yeah. But yeah, he doesn't work in... Roman society very well. Right. Especially since, according to some Roman thoughts of how government works, that kind of part flattery in Elizabethan English is called policy. It's considered something that, while not particularly great in individual interactions, 
is something that one should adopt occasionally for the public good. And this is the case that Volumnia, Coriolanus's mom, tries to make to him when she's trying to persuade him to go and be nice to the people. You know, she says, I would dissemble with my nature where my fortune and my friends required that I should do so in honor. I am in this your wife, your son, the senators, the nobles, and you. And you will rather show our general louts how you can frown than spend a fawn upon them. So you won't, you won't even yield a little bit. And we're asking you as kind of this expression of community pietas to please just lay aside your adamantine resolve just for a few minutes. Right. So we don't have the whole city about our ears. Right. And at this, you know, eventually he says, yeah, yeah, mom, okay, I'll do it. And then he doesn't. <laughs> Before we go on, I just can't help but notice the parallel between how the crowds work in Coriolanus mm-hmm. and how they work in Julius Caesar. So we'll just we'll just have to put a tab on that because I think it's probably a bit, well, I don't know, it's really big in Coriolanus. It's huge, yeah. So, but before we, we, we press on to the next kind of episode of what happens, we have a conflict, right? And it's Coriolanus. It seems like he's doing all sorts of things that would antagonize the plebs, mm-hmm. but they don't, right? They don't end up antagonizing the plebs. And the plebs, as you mentioned, have this due reverence towards Coriolanus because they understand that, you know, he saved the day. Right. So it seems like if you just had the plebs and Coriolanus <laughs> as, you know, full of Thumos and honor-seeking and self-aware of his own accomplishments, you'd be good, despite the fact that there is certain tensions there. Right? Coriolanus is definitely looking down on them, right? Definitely. Without doubt. Definitely feels like he's the one that's pulling all the weight. It's kind of like the reverse of of why Livy has this metaphor of like, we need to be a body, right? You have the plebs who are like, we're doing all the work, you're doing nothing. Mm-hmm. And it, it seems like with Coriolanus, it's just kind of like the reverse. She's like, I'm, I'm doing everything. I'm keeping this whole operation going. You guys really should be <laughs> grateful. And, but they are. But what you're talking about, Jonathan, isn't that, you're describing Caesarism. You're describing monarchy, basically, which is one virtuous ruler who kind of allies himself with the common people and says, don't worry about anything. I'm going to take care of you. Well, isn't it a little different, though? Because Coriolanus doesn't say, I'm going to take care of you. He says, like, you need to get out of my way. <laughs> Just the hypothetical Jonathan's drawing. Like, like here's, here's how you could make Coriolanus work in Rome if you make him Caesar. It almost seems like the... The general setup is Coriolanus does some amazing things and the plebs, despite how Coriolanus abuses them, they're grateful for what's been done and are willing to work with that. Mm -hmm. Whereas the higher up you move and the hierarchy, you need to move beyond simply the reality of like, you did this, I'm glad. You now need to follow certain customs (laughs) and rules and kind of play this political game of, you know, flattery and do things beyond, at least this, I think this is how Coriolanus would see it, beyond what's necessary. It seems like that's where you have the clash, not so much where it seems obvious, right? It seems like you would obviously have a clash with Coriolanus and the plebs. Mm-hmm. So, Catherine, where if you had to like zoom in and say, okay, this is the clash that leads to the downward spiral. <laughs> Well, I think it's the fact that Coriolanus is coming up against the reality that not everything is war and not everything can be fixed by just smashing things, to put it very bluntly. Because his solution to the grain riot is, let's fight them. Let's fight the plebs and crush them into obedience. He's always saying, hang them. Yeah, exactly. They are dissolved. Hang them. (laughs) And so you see this much, you see, I think the best kind of crystallization of this is how Menenius, who is the same rank as Coriolanus, who is a senator, who is a patrician, comes in and tries to like calm down the people. And his first line is, 
What, my masters, my good friends, my honest neighbors, will you undo yourselves? It's this very conciliatory, like, I'm going to talk to you like we're on the same level almost, or maybe even that you're a little higher than me. Menenius has them almost calmed down at this point. And then Coriolanus enters and says, what's the matter, you dissentious curs that rubbing the itch of your opinion make yourselves scabs? I mean, the contrast is <laughs> light years apart. And so it's, he sees the common people as just a problem to be fixed. And I think that the problem is not so much systemic because people can figure out how to work the system. Mm-hmm. It's that Coriolanus just doesn't understand that you don't use a hammer for everything. Yeah, I think this is a great segue into what you were talking about at the beginning with how this is Roman Pietas going awry is what this plays about. Um, because, yeah, you can't, you can't make war on your family. Right. Like, you don't solve family problems by going to war. And that's really what he's trying to do because you talked about how you have the Roman family and then through the family, you're connected to the city. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's kind of a reciprocal relationship through the city. You're also related to your family on some level. Yeah, definitely. And then the, the gods are in there somewhere. So I'll let you just kind of talk about that. But before I do, just want to bring up one point related to that, which is, well, first, that how does it go awry? Because this seems like a really nice integrated system. Mm-hmm. Like this is an ideal setup for civil peace is the gods created our city. They gave us our family and made us all related to each other in the city. Mm-hmm. And so we can all just get along because we all have the same, we're all pointed in the same direction. We all have the same end, which is <laughs> loyalty to our fathers, um, to the city fathers, and to the father of the gods. That's kind of one question. The other one is question of blood, which jumped out at me in this play because you have these really interesting scenes where Coriolanus is covered with blood. Oh, yeah. And so I think when he's coming home at the beginning of the play, he's covered in blood from some battle. And his wife, Virgilia, is like, oh, my God, oh, no, what happened to him? And his mother's like, this is great. Look at him covered in blood. (laughs) Let me count how many wounds he has. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And they, they total him up. They're like, well, he had he had this many from expelling the king when he was a mm-hmm. boy. He had this many from this battle. And he's like, now he's got tw- like 27 scars, I think. Yep. 27. Every gash was an enemy's grave. Yeah. So you have blood occurring all over the place in this play. So Coriolanus is covered with mm-hmm. blood. You get this really interesting line from Volumnia's speech at the end when... She, like you talked about, she's appealing to Pietas on multiple levels and saying, would you, I'm not going to get the line right, but would you, are you really, Coriolanus, are you really going to come to Rome and tread on the womb that gave you birth? Yeah. And so it's like, we can talk a lot about that line. We don't have to go too into it. But I mean, the idea of the womb, so he comes out from the womb bloody as a baby, right? Right. But then he's going to inflict blood on that womb. But of course, the womb is not just her womb. It's also the city is the womb that gave him birth. Yeah. So you have blood on this family level. You have blood on this city level. But then the big question is, for me, where is the blood relative to the gods? Because you sacrifice to the gods. Right. That's the nature of pagan piety is bloody sacrifices. Yeah. And yet I don't think we ever see any blood. You see blood all over the family, blood all over the city, but zero blood relative to the gods. So with all of that, (laughs) tell us about Pietas. Sure. So the way that kind of going back to the first question of like, this seems like such a great system. How would it go awry? Yeah. I think so... The description that you gave, which was great, of like the fathers, we were dutiful to the fathers in the family, the community, and the divine. Yeah. That picture of this almost perfect utopia, you know, Pietas version, it leaves out human nature. Oh, nature. Yeah. Let's talk about nature. (laughs) So the human, and particularly what like 
in theological discourse is the sin nature, because like we don't do what would be better most of the time. Mm-hmm. So if the tribunes weren't petty, then we could have, you know, a normal pietas without their obstruction. If the patricians weren't so stingy in terms of like, it's not just that there's a famine, it's that they're keeping a bunch of grain in a storehouse and not selling it. And this is not touched upon so much in the play, but it is in Plutarch. So if it weren't for the patricians being so tight-fisted, we would have better pietas relations with the community. But because we have all these people being as we are, selfish and wanting our own little thing, and maybe it's not the best for the community, but who cares? That's where pietas breaks down. And that's actually what happens here in this play too, because what would be best is for Coriolanus to either not run for consul or having run for consul to be a good consul and not antagonize the plebeians. Or failing that, if we're going to like after he's banished, then he could just go be in exile and be quiet and not do damage to Rome and then be called back eventually because the plebeians always recall people. It's not a big deal. And they clearly only sort of hate him. Right. Because they were willing to elect him the first time. Right, exactly. And then they had a recount, so. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and it wasn't even a recount. It was like, (laughs) we recall our votes. (laughs) Yeah. We messed up. (laughs) Yeah. So all of those things are ways that the pietas here goes awry because people are, Coriolanus in particular, just says, no, I want what I want now, and I don't care about my family having to suffer. Like, I don't care that if I antagonize the plebeians, then my wife and mother are going to have to live in the city without me and raise my son without me for a little while at least. You know, when he goes over to the Volscians, I'm just so mad at Rome right now that I don't care what would happen to my family. Like, he doesn't even try to get them out of Rome before he joins the Volscians. For all he knows, Rome could get really angry at his family and kill them all. In fact, in Plutarch... When the Roman ladies go to Volumnia and Coriolanus's wife, Virgilia, to say, like, could you please go and ask Coriolanus to not destroy the city? They say, we could have been really awful to you because you're the family of a traitor, but we weren't. Wow. So Shakespeare cuts that out, but that thread is still back there because, I mean, we know how human nature works. Right. So... He doesn't even think about that. I mean, he says he loves his family so much, but he just leaves them all behind and cuts himself off to the point that he says, like, I will stand as if a man were author of himself and knew no other kin. And so that self-focus is what makes this impossible situation. Mm -hmm. We don't have to have the impossible situation where his mother has to choose between her son or the city. Right. But we do because he's being angry and selfish and taking all of those things together without thinking. Mm-hmm. Now that last quote sounds kind of like an encapsulation of anti-piety. Yeah. Right. It's like, it's just, it's just me. I am, I am an Island <laughs> and no, you know, reference to parents and then how that extends to the community. It's just me. And that's how I'm going to, I'm going to live. Yeah. No, yeah. If you give birth to yourself, like you don't need your parents, you don't need your city, and you don't need the gods. I mean, that's how Coriolanus is going to be a god, right? Is Yeah. In some way, this is the story of the Garden of Eden, is I want to be like a god. I want to give birth to myself. Yeah. Or the fall of Lucifer. Yeah, totally. And so is that why there's no blood to the gods? Because pantomime piety to his family and to the city, but he can't do it for the gods because that's his real rival is he wants to be a god. And so he's never really going to sacrifice. He's never going to show real piety to the gods. I think in Coriolanus's case, yes, because he has a very odd relationship to the gods in the sense of he says at one point when he has decided to spare Rome, he says, the heavens do ope. The gods look down and this unnatural scene they laugh at. Hmm. So there's this sense that the gods are distant, but it's not just Coriolanus, it's the whole play. There's very little discussion of the gods. There's very little 
actual piety to the gods. In fact, this is something where Shakespeare made a lot of changes to Plutarch because in Plutarch, the gods are everywhere. And Plutarch says that the gods inspired this and they did that. And then after all this happens, the Coriolanus's mother and wife actually build a temple as a thank you to the gods, specifically to fortune. Mm. And so there's this piety woven throughout Plutarch and Shakespeare has almost systematically just cut it out. And so he's made this very dysfunctional Roman society that's missing a third of the reality of piety. And so there's this emptiness. And so they keep trying to fill that with other stuff, whether it's community piety, political ambition, familial duty, any of those things. But there's this empty thing over here and they can't fill it. Yeah. It's kind of like what the movie Troy did to the, to the Iliad. A total boltmanization of, of it and just you get rid of the gods. But more seriously, it does seem to be an intentional move because Shakespeare is not afraid of like mm-hmm. touching on supernatural stuff. When you think of, mm-hmm. of uh, Julius Caesar, right? You have all these omens and all these portents and it's crazy. Oh, yeah. And so it does seem to be a very intentional silence. Yeah, definitely. Well, and, and even when it's there... I think he's doing something. This discussion reminded me of when he's going to war in Act 1, Scene 4. He does pray, but listen to what he prays. He says, Now, Mars, there's like going about to go into battle. Now, Mars, I prithee, make us quick in work that we with smoking swords may march from hence to help our fielded friends. And so even when he's like going to battle, he doesn't pray for victory. Mm -hmm. He doesn't pray for protection. He says... Hurry it up. I want to go fight. <laughs> like he's not asking for help, except that it come faster, that the fight come faster. And even at an even deeper level, and this would strike probably Shakespeare's Elizabethan audience very hard. Mm-hmm. There's nobody who's asking for the gods to be glorified. Hmm. Because one of the things, like this is a highly catechized society, there are catechisms all over the place. And of course, the most famous is the Westminster, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So this idea that the whole of life is not really for here or even, or really definitely not for me, you know, as a human being, that's nowhere in the play in terms of like, let's look and and see like the divine is the the main point. Mm -hmm. Nobody in the play seems to think that the divine is the main point. Oh, by the way, we almost never see priests. In a lot of Shakespeare plays, we see priests of some kind, huh. or at least they're talked about. There's a couple mentions of priests. They're very cursory. A lot of times they can get cut out of performances because they're so perfunctory right. in this play. Huh. Yeah, I don't even remember where they are in here. They, they do make an appearance? There's one where the priests were sent out to talk to Coriolanus before Menenius and Cominius. Huh. Like, if he rejected the priests and rejected Cominius, then he won't take me, says Menenius. Oh, I see, when they're trying to get him to not destroy Rome. Yeah. But it's very, very quick things. And Volumnia, similarly, Ryan, to the quote you read, Volumnia prays. And she says, after Coriolanus has been banished, she meets up with the tribunes in, like, she runs into them in the street and calls down all sorts of curses on them and then says... I would the gods had nothing more to do but to confirm my curses. Mm -hmm. So she has this idea. She rarely ever talks about the gods except in this scene. And seems to actually kind of poo-poo Virgilia, who's a lot more pious than she is. Yes, she is. But when she needs the gods, she doesn't need the gods in the sense of like, oh, oops, I, I should probably go and like reconcile with the gods. It's more just like, okay, just throw down thunderbolts. Right. So it's it's a society without the divine almost. Yeah. Yeah. You're giving the examples of why this kind of integral piety doesn't actually end up working. And so you talked about the tribunes being petty and kind of seeking to aggrandize their own power. You talk about the patricians being stingy and withholding grain. You talk about Coriolanus being unwilling to swallow his damaged pride. Like all of these things, and so these are like examples of human nature in action. I mean, I think, mm-hmm. would it be fair to say that all those things can be kind of summarized under the rubric of like love of one's own? 
Yeah. That that you love your own body or your own family or your own class. And the love of one's own actually supersedes your loyalty to the city. And so you can kind of fake on some level that the city is your family when the love of one's own coincides with love of the city. But when love of one's own conflicts with love of the city, you're going to choose your own every time. I would say yes and no to that because... Love of one's own in the sense of one's individual self. I would almost say possessiveness a little bit more than love. Uh-huh. Because a lot of times the love that's shown is not not real love. But there's one person who does choose the city over her own, and that's Volumnia. Because at the end, she says, you know, I want you to spare Rome. Mm-hmm. Now, it depends on the interpretation, and I've seen it done both ways. It can be either that she knows what she's asking or she doesn't. Hmm. But I tend to think she does know what she's asking because she says either we have, like, even if we got to choose which side would win, we'd lose either our city or you, Coriolanus. And so there's this, you know, no-win situation. Right. And she chooses to go to him and say, please choose the city. And she's no fool. She's the one who sent him off to war. So she has to know that what she's asking is, you know, break your promises to the Volscians and you'll probably die. But I'm asking you to do this. Although it's her city, so (laughs) that could also make your point too. (laughs) And it's her grandson. True. Whom she's going to raise to be just like Coriolanus. Right. She gets another shot. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk about Volumnia. I think she is probably my favorite character in the play. Oh, yeah. Because um, <laughs> Coriolanus, I mean, he's a wonderful kind of prod to thought and contemplation, but it's just like every single time it's the same thing. <laughs> um, whereas she's... He's so predictable. He's very predictable. And that's the thing. Everyone plays him like a fiddle because everyone in the play knows he's predictable. Oh, yeah. And so they just get him pissed off. This happens throughout. They get him pissed off. And then once he's angry, they can, he's just totally exposes himself. But here's something to kind of problematize whether Volumnia really loves the city or she really loves her own. In act one, scene three, she's talking with Coriolanus's wife, Virgilia, her daughter-in-law. And Virgilia's like, how can you be so gung-ho about him, about your son fighting? And it seems it's some numbers that don't quite add up that I think Shakespeare's telling you something. So Virgilius says, but had he died in the business, madam, how then? And Volumnia says, then his good report should have been my son. So his, his glory, you know, would have been my offspring. I therein would have found issue. Hear me profess sincerely. Had I a dozen sons, each in my love alike, and none less dear than thine and my good Martius, I'd rather had 11 die nobly for their country than one voluptuously surfeit out of action. So she says, well, if I had 12 sons, I'd be fine to have 11 die. I was <laughs> like, well, so you don't want to give over the last son, do you? <laughs> you still want one. Right. I hadn't really thought about those numbers that way. She is very, very invested in Coriolanus's good name. So this isn't how I read the play, but I have seen the play performed as if she is basically the ultimate vicariously living parent. Huh. I don't read the play this way because I think she's actually pretty dedicated to the city in the sense of she might be a little more committed to glory than we might think is a good idea. But it's a very Rome. She's a very Roman woman in that respect. Right. Because she says that she wants him to have a good report. And Rome is a very honor-shame culture. Totally. What other people say about one, that's the most important thing. There's very little idea of this, like, well, it doesn't matter what people say. I know that I did the right thing. If other people say that I didn't do the right thing, then that means I didn't do the right thing. Mm -hmm. Which is why we get stories like Lucretia, who commits suicide because of something that happened to her, not something she did. Right. But she knows that everybody's going to think of her as a bad person, so she kills herself. Right. To preserve her reputation and the reputation of her family. Right. And that's a whole nother messed up Pietas story, but that's another thing. So I think that 
for her, love of the city means dedication, means giving up. She knows Coriolanus could die. I mean, she makes it very clear that he could. She says, actually, probably she sent him off a little earlier than she should have. Like, she says that when he first went to battle, he was, that's the age when for an for a day of king's entreaties, a mother should not sell him an hour from her beholding. So, like, she shouldn't let him out of her sight for an hour, even if king's begged her all day. But she sent him off to war at this point. And that was the war to expel the Tarquins, to expel the kings. So, to make Rome Republican. Yeah. So I think that this is a case of, yes, she is very invested in glory, but I think that's a very Roman cultural thing. And this is why I love Shakespeare so much, because he makes Rome, Rome. And Professor Jan Blitz is kind of an exception to the rule in that he sees this, and he talks about this a lot, as opposed to most Shakespeare scholars will say like, oh, this is Elizabethan stuff. Shakespeare is very aware of what makes Rome, Rome, and he makes Rome Roman. And it's very different from Hamlet's Denmark. Interesting. And so I think this is part of that cultural kind of placing us. Mm-hmm. And I think his Elizabethan audience would would take the same view in the sense of, if they saw it in an Elizabethan woman, that would be a problem. That would be a big problem because the ladies' behavior manuals of the time say things like, you shouldn't take excessive pride in your children. It's wrong. But it wouldn't be wrong for a Roman matron to do that in the sense of, like, not in the sense of it's not wrong because there is an ultimate right and wrong, but in the sense of, <laughs> in the sense of, well, like, of, of what else <laughs> are children for, you know? For sending away to boarding school. I think that's the English practice. Because, <laughs> I mean, the, the line you quoted about not let your 16-year-old son out of your beholding for an hour, it's like, I mean, I don't know when the boarding boarding schools may be more Victorian, but the English, man. Yeah, that's later. They would send their kids away for months at a time and be like, it was normal. Why would I look after my children? Yeah, and that is later because most people in Shakespeare's day didn't go too far from their hometown ever. Okay, got it. He's odd in that he moved to London. Now to the kind of going back to the question of Bolumnia and how how she thinks about her son and his relationship to the city and whether or not she would actually give him up, you know, as a sacrifice for the city, so to speak. I'm happy to be wrong, but it seems like she's definitely willing for Coriolanus to go down, if that means the preservation of the city. Mm-hmm. Because when she goes back, when she, you know, persuades Coriolanus with the with her epic speech and has, you know, his Coriolanus' wife and his son it's hard uh, for me to imagine that there's any turning back on where this is going. And if Coriolanus tries to, you know, if he gives up on on being an enemy of Rome, he's gone far enough that he he is not going to make it. Now, is there is that right? Or is there a, a scenario in which Volumnia goes and she can plausibly think, you know, I think I think we can fix this and Coriolanus is going to live. Or is it a clearer setup that's like, you know, Coriolanus, you have to die. At this point, your death means the salvation of the city. And we need the city. We don't need you. I mean, that that might be putting it too crassly, but it seems like those are the options. Yeah. So in the play, it seems like that's the case. Like, how can he go back? He's already gone over to the enemy. He's already done the worst thing possible. How does Rome know that he won't do that again? In Plutarch, there seems to be a little bit of a maybe possibly he could be taken back, maybe, because the plebeians recall him after he, like, they try to recall him after he's gone and joined the Volscians, and they all know he's gone and joined the Volscians. But we don't hear about that in the play. Shakespeare cut that out. So I think in the Shakespearean version, there really isn't a a way to fix this, where everybody lives. Yeah. From Volumnia's perspective, it's not just about saving her son's life versus saving the city's life, at least the appeal she makes. And so we can decide if this is rhetorical for Coriolanus' sake in order to convince him or if this is what she thinks. But she says, Thou knowest, great son, the end of war is uncertain, but this certain, that if thou conquer Rome, the benefit which thou shalt thereby reap is such a name whose repetition will be dogged with curses. So it's like, 
look, if you do this, you might live. The city will die. I mean, you don't care about the city anymore. It's unclear that Coriolanus ever really cared about the city in any real way. Yeah. <laughs> but what's, what will be murdered is your name. And that's what she's been so concerned with the whole time is, mm-hmm. is her son's name. And if you do this, it's going to ruin your name. And I, for me, I think that's, that's the moment where the emotional tenor changes. And it's like, oh, he's not going to take Rome once he realizes that his name will be cursed. Well, it seems like there's a sense in which you need to care about the city in order for, for that appeal to work, mm-hmm. right? Because if you're like, oh, the Romans are going to curse my name. Guess what? I don't care. I'm about to kill all of them. And I can, by the way. Mm. That seems that ultimately, if we kind of want to see this, and I'd be interested in hearing what you think about this, Catherine, whether or not this is a tragedy in the way that Aristotle defines it, where, you know, he, you need, you kind of need a good man that has some tragic flaws and makes a fatal miscalculation, and then it's all downhill from there. Or, or there's something else going on. But it seems like there's an L. So this is this is kind of how I how I read it. I kind of do see it as a Aristotelian tragedy where he just made this awful miscalculation due to his, you know, disordered temper. Hmm. And at the end of the day, he does love Rome, right? And he, he does care about the city. He let his passions run away and take the day. He decided that he cared about his name more than he cared about the city. But then there's this realization that the, the way in which he cares about honor is in reference to his city. Mm. Right? You know, the Volscians, they could honor him. Right. But that doesn't really move him. He wants the Romans to honor him. And at this point, he doesn't want them to dishonor him. That's what what he's willing to die for, in a sense. It's like, you know, these are the people that I care about, or at least I care what they think about me. It's in this direction that I want to go because I care what they think about me. I think he, he does care about his reputation and his name. I'm not sure he cares about what the city thinks of him. I think it's what he, what his mother thinks of him. Yeah, I think you're right. In the sense of when she says your name will be cursed, that's not the point where he yields yet. True. She goes through several more appeals and runs through appeal after appeal, because that's the community pietas, if you want to categorize it. Yep. And she already appealed at this point in the speech to divine because she says, you bar our prayers to the gods. Like, we can't pray because we could either pray for the victory of the country or we could pray for your victory, but they're mutually exclusive. So she's already covered divine. She's already covered community. And it's really when she turns to family that she gets him. Yeah. Because she says, you know, you don't care about me. You're ungrateful. Yeah. There's no man in the world more bound to his mother, yet here he lets me prate like one in the stocks. Thou hast never in thy life showed thy dear mother any courtesy. Like, she goes after him and says, I did everything for you and you don't care. Yeah. And what does he, what does he say immediately when he yields? Oh, mother, mother. He says four times, mother. Yeah. And it's not even when she says you're ungrateful. It's when she disowns him Mm. that he finally yields. She says this fellow had avulsion to his mother. His wife is in Coriolis and his child like him by chance. Mm. So we will home to Rome and die among our neighbors. I am hushed until our city be afire and then I'll speak a little. And usually that's interpreted as like, I will curse him forever and then I will die. Yeah, as, as my house is burning around me from him. Right. Yeah, I'll curse him and die. Yeah. Yeah. And so when she severs that tie with him or threatens to anyway, he yields. And, and yes, exactly. He, he reasserts the connection with her by calling her mother. Yeah. And he does, I mean, Jonathan, as you said, like he does 
care deeply about his own reputation in the sense of he will not brook an insult ever. Because what gets him killed is he won't take the insult that Ophidius says, don't you dare name Mars, you boy of tears. Right. And that's the word he keeps coming back to in his refutation. He says, wait, you just called me boy? <laughs> Let me list all the stuff I just did, I did to you guys. Right. And then he gets everybody mad. But like, he keeps repeating, boy, where is this boy thing coming from? I, I've done this and this and this and this and this and this and this. He won't be insulted. He can't take it. Yeah. Well, any final thoughts, Jonathan? No, I think this is great. Just an interesting observation is, as Catherine pointed out, what makes Coriolanus at the end of the day kind of switch his direction is is the appeal to to herself, right? To her to herself as as, as you know, I'm your mother, you've gone off the rails, mm-hmm. I'm gonna disown you. And this is when he realizes that he has done something wrong, right? Yeah. Um and it's in the concept of Pietas, it kind of starts with the family. Mm-hmm. So it kind of makes sense, right? That you go that he needs to kind of go back to the very reason why he got started in a sense and his pursuit of honor, because you know whether whether you read Volumnia as the vicarious mother, or or just a good you know Roman matron, either way, she's the one that is encouraging some sort of pursuit of glory. Mm-hmm. You know that can go in in several different directions, but she she is encouraging it, and it seems like this is a point where Coriolanus can look back. And realize this is, in a sense, this is why I'm doing all of this. Yeah. I'm doing this, in a sense, because of a family and something must have gone wrong along the way. But this is kind of like the way back to to real piety, in a sense. Just re- remembering the beginning. Yeah, that shift. Catherine, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. I don't know which... Shakespeare play we're doing next. Uh, well, I mean, what do you all think of Julius Caesar? Let's do it. Yeah, I'm excited. <laughs> awesome. Um, all right. Sounds good. Great. Well, thank you, Catherine, and thanks everyone listening for joining us on New Humanists, our biweekly podcast all about rediscovering the humanistic tradition and making sense of it for the modern world. Please subscribe on whatever platform you're using five star reviews help us a lot so that apple podcasts will kind of surface this and show it to people who are interested in hearing people talk about shakespeare for an hour thanks so much everybody 